turn with me, if you will, to Second Peter chapter 2 as we continue to work our way through the book of Second Peter. Um, we'll, we'll begin, uh, we'll actually focus today on verse 19 of Second Peter chapter 2. In verse 19, uh, Peter writes, They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to preach your word, Father. I pray, God, that you've given me, um, God, that God, you've given me so much to say today, Father God. I pray, Lord, that I'm able to say it clearly, Father God, without histrionics, Father, without any false passion, without any false emotion, Father God. But I pray, God, that my heart's stirred by these things. Because, God, the more I've focused on them, the more I've, I've just concentrate on your word in this father the more i realize that this is this is the issue father that it's dominated so much of the last decade of my life in preaching father god and that i know god it's something that we still have to preach now father god i it, it may be even god i don't understand all the implications of this it may be father god because there's a a slightly wider audience than usually I, I preach to, Father God. It may be that may be the reason, Father. But I don't know who is prepared, who needs to hear this today, Father God. I know good and well that the man who's preaching it, Father God, needs to hear it today. I can't speak for anyone else, but I pray, Father God, today that you will, God, just overcome me right now. That you'll overcome this church, Father. You'll overcome our uh, boredom, Father God, or our apathy, or God, whatever holds us back. God, that you'll take control of that, Father God, and that, that the solution, that is always a solution based on you, Father God, that's always based on you, God, will start to take hold in this church, in, in this community, Father God, and it will spread. That, that such enormous things have such tiny beginnings, Father. And that I pray now, God, that you begin an enormous thing today from the tiny beginning in an obscure place. I pray that you do that now, Father God, not because I desire importance. There's no self-importance in this, Father God. But I realize just how important it is that your truth be heard throughout the church today, Lord. I love you, God. I thank you for the ability to come, uh, the opportunity to come and preach. And I pray for the ability to preach today, Lord. I thank you for everything, God. But more than anything, I thank you for the, for the blood of Jesus, Father God, for his sacrifice on Calvary that saves our sins, Lord. In the name, in the name of Christ, I pray, Lord. Amen. Um, now, for the passage, I think maybe I've summarized it best in the very first sentence. Slaves leading slaves into perdition. That's the, that's the condition into which this truth is offered. Because it is a, it's a in many ways, it's a, a church-wide condition. It's a confession-wide condition. And the idea is that there are a lot of people today, not just in the world. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe the problem that I grapple with, and maybe the problem that we grapple with, is that we are used to our enemies being outside the church. Okay? We're used to our enemies being blasted on Fox News. Okay? It's very easy. It's almost like they've got uniforms, right? It's very easy to identify friend and foe. Well, these people that believe these things are our enemies 
But the people we see around us, the people we sit next to in church, never are. But now what the Bible is abundantly clear about is, if there's somebody in the church, maybe not specifically locally, but there's somebody in the church who's preaching an aberrant gospel, a gospel that's not the gospel that, that, that Christ preached and died for, that Paul and Peter and John and the writers of the New Testament or the writers of the Old Testament predicted through prophecy. If it's not that, then those people are enemies. Just because they say they're on our team, it doesn't mean they are our friends. Now there's difficulty there because we want to like people. And we especially want to like people that we identify with. They look like us, they talk like us, they act like us. In, in many ways, we may even look at them from some groups around and say, man, in some ways they, they feel more like the model of faith than we do. But it comes back to the gospel that is preached and to the impact of that gospel on the lives of its believers. For Peter, he said within the, 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 the confession of the church, within the, I mean the, the, the church that we would identify as a church, there are going to be leaders who are slaves still and all they're doing is leading other slaves. They are quite literally the blind leading the blind. And they both fall in the ditch. Now, as I, as I prayed over this, I, I thought of, of some verses that I think need to impact us today. And they're, they're, not, in your, they're not in your notes, but I'll give to you very quickly very familiar verses. Uh, Christ says in John 14, verse 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Such a simple verse. But it's everything we need to know about what the gospel does in our lives. To embrace the gospel in salvation. In being reborn from darkness to light. The blood of Christ shed on Calvary. Applied to your life for the atonement of your sins. Not just, uh, if, not just sufficient. Excuse me, not just efficient. Uh, uh, sufficient for your sins. But efficiently applied for your sins means that now you're in a love-based relationship with Christ in which all the loving has been done by Him, all the sacrifice has been done by Him. And He says that my response is what? Keep His commandments. If I love Jesus, I keep His commandments. If you love Jesus, you keep His commandments. It is a titanic statement because it is unwaveringly offered. If I am in a situation, church, right now, in which I'm not keeping the commandments of Christ... I am on very thin ice. Because there is no place for me to go in the Bible to find solace. I understand that He lives to make intercession. I understand that I'm saved to the uttermost because He lives to make intercession. I understand that truth. But very directly, Christ says, If you say you love me, then your response, then your response in love is to keep commandments, right? We get that. But then He says this, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. Go and learn what this means. That is our mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Christ is quite literally saying that the human animal, the person, us, wants to respond to God's love by saying what? Oh, I love you, God. I love you, God. I want to make the response to God worship. Because I can do that here. And I can sing it out. And believe it or not, it's way... Well, not believe it or not, you know it's true. It's way easier to worship than it is to live. 
It's childishly easy to worship. It's childishly easy to stand up in church and sing out these songs. It's incredibly hard to day by day by day live the commandments that Christ gave us. What does he want? Does he want sacrifice, this idea of worship? Sure he does. He deserves it. It's his. We don't give it to him. He claims it. It is, he is worthy of it. To not offer him sacrifice, to not offer him worship, is to deny him his godness. But that's not enough. What he wants is my life. Moment by moment, second by second. Defined by the commandments. God redefining Tony into the person he should have been if he had not given himself over wholeheartedly to sin. God redefining you into an image bearer. Is worship important? Yes. Worship only reflects what's really supposed to be going on every day in my life. Every day. Now, having said all that, look, for the world, for the world that's being led astray by blind leaders, instead of the freedom that comes from the true gospel, there's the deal. Is that what does the gospel give me? It gives me actual freedom. I spent my life in bondage. You spent your life in bondage. The, the gospel truly sets me free. So the scripture when Christ sets someone free, they are free indeed. They are free forever. I was once in bondage to my passions, to my desires. Literally, the Bible says my gut, my stomach ruled me. All the things I wanted in my selfishness and my self-centeredness. All of that was me. The gospel sets me free from that. The setting free from the bondage of sin and shame to serve the living God in joy and satisfaction. And I want to make sure I reiterate that at every instance in, in all preaching. You will not be disappointed by the gospel. When you embrace the gospel, you don't look back and say, is that all there is? The gospel opens your eyes in a way that you never saw before. You were blind before. You were deaf and dumb before. And now the gospel's opened your eyes to see things that simply are impossible before. The gospel doesn't disappoint. If we embrace the gospel truly, embrace the commandments truly, we don't look back and say, man, I wish I'd done things differently. It's not that ridiculous from the 90s matrix scenario with the red pill and the blue pill. You don't wish you could go back and take the wrong pill. The gospel sets us free. Completely free. Joy and satisfaction. Now the world preaches a false gospel of bondage to transgression and death. Never does Peter define the false prophets, their mission and the impact of their teaching more than in this passage where he refers to them as slaves of depravity. Slaves of corruption. Who like those to whom they, they preach are overcome by sin and the Berean Bible says in both those translations, mastered by sin. Owned by sin. Now there's the, I think there's one of those things that, that as believers we have to embrace. And I don't think we spend a lot of time talking about it. And therefore, I think we walk away, like walk into eternity almost, or try, thinking that we were somehow better than we were. Somehow not as depraved as we were. I'm going to tell you, I don't care if you were a choir boy or a choir girl every moment until you got saved. I'm here to tell you, sin owns you. 
The only reason you didn't do the blackest sins on planet earth is because it did not occur to you to do that. Because nobody around you was doing it. If you had been picked up out of your, to be honest with you, you know, unstained little existence and dropped in the darkest place ever, given enough time, you would have been doing the very same things those people do. Your heart was just as black and just as corrupt as the, as the sinners that we want to judge harshly. You were just that bad. There's no doubt biblically about it. It is abundantly true. It is but by the grace of God that you wound up offending God in the way that those people have offended God. It's just by the grace of God that you avoided that. We are all mastered by sin until Christ breaks those bonds. Mastered by it. Our Lord Jesus warned the crowd to guard their eyes, their hearts, and their minds when He preached in Matthew 6, 22-23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Man, look, I have to stop right there in the middle of that. Think back on this one right here. Folks, how often did my, literally, my being able to see something just corrupt me? An image, a moment, an idea. We aren't strong. We are weak and frail and self-centered and arrogant and jealous by nature. All that image, that image doesn't transplant anything in there. That image awakens dark things that dwell there. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you, in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. For the lost world, the light that dwells in them is just darkness. In an increasingly foul and infected world, the church must strive to maintain its purity in the face of such violation. To pollute the church with sin and iniquity is Satan's lasting strategy for reducing the effect of the gospel witness of the chosen people. He can't claim us back. Do you understand? Your salvation is held in trust by Christ. It's not dependent upon you. It's not maintained by anything outside of Jesus. Do you understand? We're not of those who've embraced that error. Grace is given and maintained by the will and purpose of Christ. And not by anything you can accomplish. Because as John MacArthur said, if you could lose your salvation, you would lose your salvation. Because you are terrible at keeping up with anything. And you are terrible at doing what God says. So how in the world is salvation going to be maintained? By the efforts of people. That is a losing, biblically, a losing proposition. It simply doesn't fly. It is logically precluded. But what Satan knows is this, is that he can reduce your boldness to ashes. He can reduce your willingness to serve to nothing. And he can inspire and increase your apathy if he can pollute you with sin. He knows if, you're, if your Saturday night is caught up in sin, your Sunday morning will be idolatrous. He knows he can keep 
the body of Christ out of worship services by polluting them with sin. He knows that. He knows people. He's not, he's not omnipotent. He's just really, really, really old. And he knows humanity so well. It's been his plan from the very start. So, so how do we combat it? More, more verses. James 1.27. Religion, and we were talking about the, 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 the organized practice of faith in Christ. What James means by religion. That is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. The, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, doing the things of God, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So our purity is essential to the practice of our faith. We are called by God to be a set-apart people prepared as a sacrifice. So if my life is offered to me, it is, it is a worthy sacrifice because I've been set apart as a sacrificial person. But then he also says in this, this is one of my favorite verses in Psalm 19, verse 14. Uh, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Not just everything I do on the outside. Not just whether or not I'm involved in the big sins. Those things that we know uh, the Bible condemns and that we personally condemn in ourselves and in others. But he says what? Words of my mouth, meditation of my heart. God, take ownership of my words, my mouth, take ownership of my heart. I can look great on the outside. I can have around me the veneer of holiness and respectability, and I can be just like those Pharisees. Whitewashed tombs, full of what? Dead men's bones. See, I think the church has this opposite. What the church has thought for a long time is, is it will keep people busy with holy things and somehow that will reform the inside. And what we had was a bunch of whitewashed tombs, dead men's bones, going on mission trips and evangelistic outings. What were they testifying to? They had nothing to testify to because they were full of dead men's bones. They were corrupt on this side. What God's saying is this, all those things are good. The doing of the church is is absolutely in line with what God wants us to be doing. But understand this very much. It always depends on what's on the inside. If this is full of lies and deceit, then everything I do is stained with lies and deceit. Because God can't be fooled. The world can be fooled. I can be fooled. God is not fooled. And I'll tell you something else, folks. Whether it's me or you, it's all of us. He's not impressed. Because he sees all the way to the heart. I'm so impressed with people that I think are so competent. And God sees them as nothing but broken glass. Shattered. If the church doesn't care enough about the truth to live for it and seek Christ through holiness, then how can the world accept a gospel that demands that men and women turn their backs on sin? Everything we preach so often church says the opposite of the way we live. We're telling people to do things sometimes that we're not doing ourselves. You know what that is? Hypocrisy. That is the definition of hypocrisy. The integrity of the church is at stake. 
Paul also addressed this issue in Romans 6, 16-19. Longer passage, bear with me. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Again, we don't avoid this idea of slavery. The freedom that Christ gives us through His blood on Calvary, the fact that He's atoned for our sins, died for what we did, sets us free to be a different kind of slave. That is so incompatible with Americanism. Americanism says, I can do whatever I want to do because I am free. The gospel says, I am free so I can do what Christ wants me to do. I was once in bondage to darkness. I am now in bondage to light. I was once owned by sin. I am now blood bought and bulletproof by Jesus. Now I am ready to serve. I was once, man, my bondage to sin looked like the world's freedom, doesn't it? Because I was doing whatever I wanted to do, whatever I wanted to do it. What I was really doing was doing what Satan wanted me to do. Now that I've been blood bought, I belong to Christ. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Once again, Paul in, in Romans 6 is defining what it looks like to be a believer. Obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. There is no separation between salvation and teaching. To be saved is to be made so by the application of the gospel to the human life. The engrafting of that saving truth, right? And it comes from the teaching of the Word. You can't be a believer outside the body of believers. You can't be a believer outside the preaching of the Gospel. But it doesn't stop there. You don't get your injection of the Gospel and go and do what you want to do. You get your injection of the Gospel and what happens? You're now obedient to that teaching. You're right there under it. Somebody here to tell you right now, if you've got a church full of believers, you ought to have a full church. Because you know what? those lost people hate the truth and think it's foolishness. It's only safe people who understand how much they really need that truth. The gospel simply doesn't allow you to practice the faith without being deeply involved in the preaching and teaching of the truth. You can't do it. It doesn't work. And having been set free from the sin, from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Again, we get that language, slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Thank you, Paul. Because I and you together are a ton of natural limitations, right? Yeah, Paul says something, sometimes Paul says things weirdly. But even when he's clear, I don't always understand it. Now, you know what's really going on there? It's not that I don't understand it. I'm scared to practice it. I'm, since the day I picked it up, I guess in my advanced age, I realize now, I've always been scared that it wanted me to be different than I am. And that I did not have the power under my own will to change. That I was always satisfied with me and that God was never satisfied with me. He meant for me to see the truth and embrace the truth and live the truth. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Yet when I'm in bondage, what happens? Lawlessness leads to what? More lawlessness, right? Little sins always lead to what? Big sins. 
Tiny disobediences always lead to colossal disobedience. Now, look, I'm not picking on you guys about money because the fact is God blesses this church beyond anybody's reckoning. Yeah. Neglect tithing and see how far you go in Christ. Lie to yourself. Lie to yourself that you can be disobedient to God in any area and suddenly God just doesn't care. It's an absolute lie and it's condemning. And what will happen is this, because you never get over that, you'll never go anywhere. You'll always be spinning your wheels. Always. Because lawlessness begats lawlessness. Every time. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. In the slave's mind, the only safe course is what? Obedience to the master. Right? Because masters don't negotiate with slaves. They don't decide together on the terms of service. There's not a contract involved. The contract is blood. The, master's, the master has life and death in his hands. If the slave is disobedient enough, the master will simply write off the slave, right? Cast them aside. Because they are worthless as a slave. The one who has, who has bought us at a price does not negotiate his terms of service. Why should he? He has paid the ultimate price for our lives. Why should he ever negotiate? The joy of the gospels that are lingering and dominating slavery to darkness and death is ended and the beautiful slavery of obedience and holiness begins. The point of the gospel message is that we were once slaves of sin, but we have become obedient from the heart. So that my, obedience is, my obedience, folks, isn't superficial. My obedience is not... Is not um, my obedience is not just on the outside. My obedience goes to the depths of who I am. It's from the heart. Define the Christian life. Christians are those who have forsaken sin and death by the power of Christ and are reborn in His image from the shattered life of sin to live in obedience to His standard of teaching and are committed to becoming sanctified servants of Jesus enslaved to the Bible's standards of holiness. Remade completely from the ground up. The very foundation of my life is now made on the chief cornerstone. And everything about me is supposed to be completely, radically different and absolutely in line with what he says. And I realize it's the standard that not one single person in this room meets. I totally get that. Because the guy who's speaking feels like such a hypocrite right now. Thinking about every tiny little aspect of his life. And you know what this preaching's supposed to do? Make me feel exactly that way. Make you feel exactly that way. Will we live the perfect Christian life? Absolutely not. Can we do better? Yes, we have to do better. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt we have to. While we can waver, excuse me, no real salvation exists in the life of a person who does not see himself or herself as the intentional slave of Christ. When you are really saved, saved you understand that you are saved to be a slave. While we can waver in our commitment, be dominated by the past, conflicted about the future, or torn by lingering brokenness and despair. There's no question the gospel demands that each believer give their lives to seeking the Savior through holiness. True biblical salvation leads to a desire for an abandoned, changed, and righteous life. It's simply God's standard. It is God's standard that we live that way. Look, in the name of the rose, in the book I've quoted before, 
the Italian writer Mario Echo writes this, is that why the, he, said, he answers the question, is that why the Church of Rome accuses all its adversaries of heresy? Well, they do. That is why, and that is also why it recognizes as orthodoxy any heresy it can bring back under its own control or must accept because the heresy has become too strong. I, I say that because I think that's, in that little novel, not a little novel, it's actually a really fat novel, um, in that fat novel, I think that's the way that most of modern Christianity approaches heresy. It's heresy until we realize it's just too strong and we just embrace it. It's going on in our convention right now. If enough people fuss that this is right, we'll accept it. We'll absolutely throw down the gauntlet, throw down the gauntlet that we can't have women preachers until enough Southern Baptists go astray and we feel like the whole convention is going that way and guess what, all of a sudden it'll be right. What was wrong one day is right the next. You know why? Because we're not, we're, not, we're not readjusting the gospel. The gospel wasn't readjusted. That's madness. What we're doing is capitulating. We were once strong and now we're weak. We were once in line with Christ and willing to die for the truth and now we just simply don't care about the truth anymore. We want to protect, protect our phony baloney positions. I can't have my big church and make a quarter of a million dollars a year and retire well. That ain't me, by the way. People aren't here. Trust me. It's not me. What they do, they'll side with the green instead of siding with the blood. For the Christian witness of which this church is a part titanic voices of misinformation and false gospel echo throughout the stratosphere calling the guilty and the broken to accept their flaws and not surrender them to embrace their sin as a definition and to see Christ as an indulging leader who is less than serious about his pronouncements that man that's the greatest corrupt God just really didn't mean that because you don't like it God can't have meant that because your flesh hates the truth, God no longer means the truth. That has never existed in the 2,000 years of Christianity, but it's right now upon us. In the same way that the heretic Joel Osteen, and I don't use that word lightly, wrote in Your Best Life Now, Seven Steps to Living at Your Full Potential, and yes, I did not read it. You have to learn to follow your heart. You can't let other people pressure you into being something that you're not. If you want God's favor in your life, you must be the person He made you to be. Not the person your boss wants you to be. Not even the person your parents or your husband wants you to be. You can't let outside expectations keep you from following your own heart. Osteen's wisdom, or lack of it, is for each of the members of his enormous congregation to surrender their lives not to biblical truth, but to internal and demonic lies. As Jeremiah rebuts all of this in Jeremiah 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Deceit is to lie, right? To deceive is to lie. So he tells a congregation of 50,000 or something like that to follow lies. That's what the devil does. Lies. Jeremiah says the heart is untrustworthy because the heart lies and is twisted by sin. Don't follow your heart. One of the most powerful voices in the wider Christian culture calls on men and women to trust lies and reject truth. No offense, he has a way bigger audience than I do, guys. A way bigger. And I can sit here and rail and rail and rail, and there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people listening to this guy. 
believing it's Bible. Not Bereans, believing it's Bible. Never even doubting that what he says is true. Building their lives on shifting sand. This is the, that's the fulfillment of Peter's prophetic preaching in the, in the focal passage. As believers in Christ, we understand by way of the scriptures that the last day will be times of confusion in which the truth becomes a rare commodity. That's it. The truth we're talking about today is very rare in our culture. If you want to live the way you want to live by the voice of your heart, there are thousands of people telling you, and there are very few of us say, your heart lies. The Bible tells the truth. Paul explained in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-10, that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. In the end, Paul says, You're going to, people are going to believe all the glamour in the world and they're going to believe all this nonsense and they're just drawn to the big and the bold and the brash and the arrogant. But the saved love truth. That if you're saved, you love truth. And if you're lost, you love deception. Love the truth and so be saved. Much of the church moves toward the normalization of heretical teaching, blasphemous action, and immoral behavior that the established mainstream congregations believe are inevitable. Why are they doing this? Why is is so much of the church around us, the big church, the church with the resources, the church with the voice, why is so much of it doing that? They lack the courage to stand firm in Christ. These apostate congregants ignore Paul's imploring in 1 Corinthians 16, 13 to be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. They ignore it. Choose weakness over strength. The modern church attempts to placate the world with its strategy of appeasement. Fearing the men and women of liberality over the creator God of the universe. This church, like every other corrupt bargainers, fears the crowd. Fear the crowd. As the church grows old and grows cynical in its approach to the world, it fears extinction. And therefore pollutes doctrine through compromise in order to ensure its corrupt survival. Folks, today, the warfare that we practice in this church as a church called by Christ to worship Him in spirit and truth is the fight with all that we have against heresies and the heretics that espouse them, protecting the church from the darkest subsistence inclinations that it has. Whatever you do in this world, never assume that the crowd is right. Because that's the logic that motivates the church of the 21st century. 50,000 is more right than 25. The Bible doesn't uphold that. The Bible says the opposite is true. The Apostle Peter calls for the church to have the kind of courage and commitment to truth that will sustain Sustain it through tribulation. When he writes in 1 Peter 5, 9, for us to resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Look, folks, if you feel like you're suffering because of this, maybe not through this sermon, but in reality, you are. And the brothers and sisters around the world are suffering in the same way. Every, Every church on this planet that stands up for what's true is going to suffer because of it. There will be 
a genocide against us and what we believe. There is no doubt. Because the, the world has no way of, of dealing with the dissenting voices other than to kill dissenting voices. They will kill us morally, they'll kill us by reputation, and eventually they'll kill us in, in physicality. They'll take our lives. Because it's the only way the world has ever dealt with this. It was the reaction of the Roman world, the reaction of the Jewish world to start with. Before we, before we bore the moniker of Christian, we were just followers of the way. The established authorities wanted to do what? Throw us in prison and kill us. We have Paul because he was going to Damascus to do what? To throw, to throw Christians in prison. It is the only way the world can deal with it. By meeting suffering with courage, the child of Christ can and will hold strong in a world where many in the visible church deny the truth, embrace pleasing lies that allow for their continued existence, plunging their congregations and conventions into more egregious sins. When we start to okay sin within our congregations and our churches, all we do is invite more sin. Some churches thought they could placate members of their church by ordaining women. And now they're ordaining homosexuals. Right? Because once you, end, once you endorse what God does not endorse, you wind up endorsing everything. And this condemns millions worldwide to answer for their sins in hell. What must happen is the revival in every denomination. A new Protestant reformation in which there is a renewal of the classic Orthodox Christian faith and a restoration of the common salvation espoused in Jude 3 that says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to condemn for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Today, we contend for the faith. Today, we call for the blood-drenched gospel that saves men and women from their sins. Not Saving them to sin. Saving them from sin. God is calling His saints today to contend for this faith and to neither abandon nor pollute the faith with convenient thinking or fearful responses. Folks, it's better to have an empty church that preaches the truth than to have a full house hearing lies. This church, the church, stands at the crossroads. As the Lord confronted Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2.5 asking, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? That's the direction of the church today. They have found fault in the faultless one. The infinite, everlastingly holy God is no longer enough for people. They have gone after the worthless and the church has become worthless. The church teeters on the very edge of worthlessness. Our Lord addressed days such as this very famously. In 2 Chronicles 7.14 where He demanded, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves. It begins here. It's not an outward show. It's not an outward show. It's inward brokenness. Am I broken at the sin I see around me? Am I not angry? I'm beyond angry. I'm broken hearted and sorrowful. Do I weep not for my country, not for the coast? Do I weep for, for my town? Do I weep for the families around me? Do I weep for my school? Do I weep for what my children are forced to hear and do and are taught? 
Do I weep for those things? My, will I humble myself? Pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways? Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. The secret is to, to our survival is not normalizing the darkest inclinations of human depravity, but in humbly praying and seeking the face of Christ. This is not something we put on a t-shirt. This is not the National Day of Prayer verse. This is our response to a world that's, that's absolutely on the fast track to hell. What's the church do? Humble yourselves. Pray. Seek the face of God. A church in sackcloth and ashes. Not a church living large the way the rest of the world is. That's God's response. God says, you want the power to see the world change? Humble yourselves. Seek the face of God. Do what the prophets did. They did not rest. Isaiah gave his life to be sawn in two with a wooden saw. Why? Because he hated the sin he saw around him. Humbled himself. That's God's dictate to us. That's the response of the faithful church. If we will do this, no heretic will reign. The gospel will go to the nations. The church will flourish. And the Lord will heal our land. Revival begins in the house of the Lord. It won't begin outside these walls. It won't begin anywhere else. Revival begins here right now. It will spread like wildfire because the truth cannot be contained. Now, folks, is the time for God's people to love truth more than lies. Now is the time in which we measure today exactly how much we as a people love the truth, are willing to stand for the truth, and willing to die for the truth. Let's stand together.